hour number two of the John and Leah Show. My name is John Ziegler. My co-host is Leah Brandon. Each Sunday we get together for three hours. We talk about the news of the week, often the events of our crazy lives, and we do so in an entertaining, informative, and unique fashion. Uh, Leah, later on in this hour, we're going to be joined by the director and co-writer of the hopefully blockbuster nationwide hit movie, The Young Messiah, which is coming out this week, March 11th. I urge you to go see it on March 11th, if not the 11th, then the 12th. Uh, We spoke with uh, Cyrus Narasta last week, but this week we're going to try something odd. We're going to actually have the phone lines work. Uh, really? So, yeah, it's going to be really groundbreaking uh, radio. Um, we, we decided it's probably better to do an interview when the phone lines are working properly. So uh, mm. we will talk with Cyrus Narasta later on in this hour. But I want to continue with the absolutely insane week of Donald Trump and how it should have destroyed him. And in fact, in this crazy upside down world in which we now live, it probably clinched him the nomination. Uh, so he didn't do nearly as well on Super Tuesday as he would like you to believe or the right-wing media would like you to believe because they're now invested in him. Let's make this very clear. The right-wing media and to a certain extent the mainstream media, they're invested in the fun and ratings that will incur because of Donald Trump being the Republican nominee. I mean, Les Moonves of CBS said this week, quote, he said publicly in an interview, it's not good for the country, but it's good for CBS News. Yes. I mean, that, and they want it to be good straight through November. Exactly. And it's the, the the biggest bonus for them, of course, is you get Hillary as president at the end of the ride, because that's what's going to happen yes. uh, when uh, Donald Trump is the nominee, barring some sort of catastrophe that, you know, like Herb King getting, getting indicted, which isn't going to happen or something crazy like that. All right. So so Tuesday comes and goes. He's perceived as the big winner, even though he shouldn't have been. Um, let's take a look at some of the other things that happened this week. Wednesday, the PGA Tour goes to his golf course in Miami, Doral, Trump's golf course. Right. Right. And of mm-hmm. course, they're all all the top players are asked about who else but Donald Trump. Not one of them, <sighs> not one of them will even bother to say anything about him. They, they, they all dodge the questions. The Thank P, goodness. The P, no, but this, this is why this is important. The PGA Tour is still not committed to bringing the tournament back next year. It's been at Doral forever and ever. Well, not this version of the tournament, but there's been a PGA Tour event in Doral since I was a little kid. I used to vacation there. Some of my best childhood memories are at Doral in Miami. Well, Trump now owns it. And the P- he is so toxic. The players won't talk about him. The PGA Tour won't commit to keeping the tournament there. The sponsor won't commit to keeping the tournament there. This is golf, folks. This is the most right-wing conservative sport that there is, and Donald Trump is that toxic, he can't even get people to pay lip service to him at a tournament where he's the host, for all intents and purposes. By the way, NBC this weekend, interestingly, barely even mentioned his name. He was on camera, I think, for one second. It was the back of him. Uh, They didn't show the trophy ceremony. He is toxic, even within golf. All right, so then we go to Thursday morning. Mitt Romney, a guy who 61 million people voted to be president of the United States less than four years ago, gives a speech that in a rational world would have ended his candidacy. Yeah, it really uh, artfully dismantled every single argument. It wasn't perfect, 
but it's Mitt Romney, so you're not expecting it to be perfect. It was pretty good. Well, I, there were a couple of things that I would have liked to have seen different. I would have liked to have seen him do a mea culpa on doing that endorsement event with Trump back in 2012, because there's no yeah. question that Romney played a role in allowing Trump to be considered real and legit um, and to be a conservative. I mean, he did that endorsement event. But let me just make sure, because it's amazing to me how poor the logic and the, and the and the ability of people to do and understand analogies is so pathetic. I don't know what happened. I mean, you know, when I was in school, we were taught analogies. All right. So how explain to me, Leah, how it is that so many people and I saw this everywhere on social media this week after Romney's speech. So many people, in fact, even major news articles said that Romney was hypocritical in accepting Trump's endorsement because for him to not think that he's a good president somehow is <laughs> hypocritical. I, I don't even understand the logic of that. When you're accepting somebody's <laughs> endorsement, you are not endorsing them for the office they're endorsing you for. Isn't that clear, Leah? Is, did I miss right. something? That, that was a few years ago, and that's when Donald Trump was a, uh, let's see, uh, he was a successful reality show host and a good businessman, apparently. But, but And I, he endorsed him back then, and so... I don't really – oh, but, but oh Romney, by the way, he's going to be running for president in four years. Right, but, but I here, can't take your endorsement. But here, That's true, too. But here's the important thing. When you're accepting someone's endorsement, you are not inherently then endorsing them for the them. same office four years later – after they do a whole series of crazy things. But that it's amazing how far people, even conservatives, will go to try to discredit Romney on this because no one wants to believe Romney. No one, I mean, we, you know, there's the old adage it is far easier to dupe somebody than to convince somebody they have been duped. And there's a lot of people who have been duped here and they don't want to accept it. And, you know, Sean Hannity, my God, in Sean Hannity in 2012, Mitt Romney was the savior of the country. Yeah, I remember. And now he's a bad guy because he's going after his new boyfriend, Donald Trump. I mean, it is the hypocrisy of people, alleged conservatives, legends, icons on the right, has been beyond disgusting. And we saw it all with Romney. So, and of course, what does what does Trump do? He does exactly what Romney predicted he would do. I know. He says, watch his reaction to this speech. And it's perfect. It's a, he doesn't go after any of the substance. He, uh-uh. you know, calls him a loser. And a by, stiff. A, and I should, you know, I, I knew when I endorsed But by the way, I love this part. I knew when I endorsed him, he was a loser because he was sucking up and he would get down on his knees if I asked him oh, to. And That uh, was bad. Oh, yeah. Which, yeah, that's the crude part. I mean, that, that you know, that's it doesn't get any more crude than that. But, but here's... Here's the amazing thing. So wait a minute. So Donald, if what you're saying is true, which I don't believe that it is, if it's true, then you're the one who showed the really bad judgment in endorsing Romney. So right. you, we're, we're supposed to believe that you're the great, you know, the great savant of understanding your human judgment. beings. Your, yeah, your judgment, your, your character judgment. You blew it with Romney then. But, of course, nothing ever sticks to Trump, so that's not relevant. So then later— and Jeff that- Sessions. Jeff Sessions came out and slammed Romney for doing it. I, I mean, I'm like, what— <laughs> He said, no matter how white your shirt or how pretty your tie, you're not going to be able to reach the poor working people like Donald Trump can. Oh, it's such a farce. All right. So then so then we had the debate that Thursday night and this debate alone should have ended any hope 
that Donald Trump ever had. Uh, forget about being president, of uh, being the Republican nominee. I'll explain mm-hmm. why when we come back on the John and Leah Show on the Free Speech Broadcasting Network. The John and Leah Show. My name is John Ziegler. My co-host is Leah Brandon. We're continuing with the week that was that should have ended Donald Trump's campaign, but instead it probably forever solidified him as the GOP nominee. So Thursday night there was a debate, Leah Brandon, and very quickly, because if we get sidetracked on this, we're never going to get through them all. Here are the things that should have been massive bombshells to destroy him that uh, barely left a mark. Number one, I think... In a rational world, him not once but twice bragging in no uncertain terms, in fact saying, believe me, um, that he would force members of the U.S. military to commit war crimes on his whim. That's a disqualifier. That is, they're, 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 I can't even imagine anything being more disqualifying except maybe talking about how large your penis is <laughs> at the same debate. He did both. He yeah. did both. Both are completely disqualifiers, but there was a moment in the debate, and this is where the right-wing sycophant Trump media comes into play, Leah. And this is where I get really ticked off because I've been screaming and yelling about this for years, and no one's listening to me, and you know I, I've been could not have been more right. But there was a moment that blows any of the iconic debate moments of the past that won elections out of the water. Way better than anything Reagan did, and I'm the biggest Reagan fan there is. But when Ted Cruz and Donald Trump were yapping back and forth, and Cruz starts to tell Trump to take a breath, Marco Rubio cuts in with a tremendously funny and cutting comment that should have won him the nomination. Let's listen. You know, Donald has a tenuous relationship with the truth. Um, I wrote one op-ed supporting President Bush's nomination after he made it. I would not have made that nomination. But let me point out, not what you say in the op-ed. That is not what you said in the op-ed. Donald, please, I know it's hard not to interrupt. But it's not what you said in the op-ed. Breathe. Breathe. Lion Ted. Breathe. You can do it. You can breathe. I, I know it's hard. I know it's hard, but just... When they're done with the yoga, can I answer a question? You, you cannot. <laughs> I really hope that we don't, we don't see yoga on this stage. Well, he's very flexible, so you never know. <laughs> now, now, right there, he's very flexible, so you never know. That right. should have been right up there with, there he goes again. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, all the other iconic lines, far less witty and funny and biting, because that goes right to the heart, right to the heart of Trump. It's funny and it's true. And did the right wing media obsess on that? Did, no. they, did they even mention it? It's, of course, Trump uh, is, you know, owns uh, the Drudge Report. He owns Breitbart. He owns Sean Hannity. He, he owns Rush Limbaugh. He owns portions of Fox News Channel now because Rupert Murdoch tweeted out that, you know, we all need to unite around Donald Trump now. So everyone at Fox News Channel now has the memo as how they want to keep their jobs. And so silence, crickets, maybe played once or twice here or there, and it doesn't become a huge part 
of the narrative, and Rubio gets no benefit. And I'm going to get to why Rubio's in such trouble in a moment. But let's just finish off with what a horrible, horrendous week this was for Donald Trump. So he has this horrific debate performance. I mean, he just gets his ass kicked every which way. He's unprepared. He's flip-flopping all over the place, showing his yoga flexibility. Mm -hmm. And then the next day, he bails from CPAC. He bails from the Conservative Political Action Conference. By the way, this is a conference where he has bribed them with two $50,000 checks in the past to get them to allow him to speak. He bails because he's afraid, rightfully, because that's what ended up happening, that he was going to get booed or it was going to be a walkout and he was going to lose the straw poll badly, which he did. He only got 15% of the straw poll after bailing on CPAC. Now, in any other world, Leah, this is a campaign that's melting down this is these are signs of a meltdown well you know i mean what a lot of people would say is it doesn't matter about cpac because they never choose the winner i'm not worried about whether they choose the winter winner i'm talking about you don't bail out of a speech in front of the conservative political action conference if something's not wrong with your campaign so if if the if the right-wing media wanted to build the narrative that trump's in big trouble they easily could have but they don't have an incentive to do that because they are they are invested business-wise in the trump nomination and probably even in his losing to hillary because then they get hillary for eight years so so then so then saturday happens now i got fooled a little bit by what happened on saturday Um, because I was still hopeful that maybe, just maybe, some people got it after Thursday's debate, all right? I was still hoping that maybe, maybe just even a little portion of the Trump base had decided, you know what, I can't do this. Or maybe the other portion of the GOP base was going to come out in such large numbers that they were going to overwhelm the Trump portion. And Kansas comes out and seems to back up that theory because Trump was leading in those polls, although those polls must have been terrible. Um, And Cruz ends up destroying Trump. And then Cruz beats Trump in Maine. And I'm thinking, hmm, wow. Something's going on. Something's going on. Well, here's what actually happened. We learned later what was really happening. It wasn't that Trump had lost any of his base. It's that half of Rubio's voters had decided to go over to Cruz. That's all that happened. And the reason why it happened is unbelievably frustrating to me in so many ways. Because here's what here's my analogy, Leah. So we got this castle. The GOP is this castle. And out in the in the yonder there, we've been seeing this monster coming towards us for months yeah. now. And we keep thinking the monster's gonna get stopped before it comes to the gates. And then all of a sudden, the monster makes it all the way to the gates, and no one's going to kill the monster. And Prince Marco comes forward and says, I'll do it. And Prince Marco comes forward and stabs the monster. And he gets him to bleed, but in return, he also gets some blood on him. And he comes back running into the castle. Guys, I made the monster bleed. And everyone goes, yeah, but it was, it was ugly. It was, um, it was unseemly. It, it, we didn't like it. We're going to go with the guy who was too cowardly to even go after the monster. Let's go with Cruz. That's what <laughs> happened here. That's what happened. We, we, we decided to punish the guy who did what we wanted, which was to take on the monster, Trump. And instead, now we're rewarding the guy who was too much of a coward and who has been glad-handing Trump since the beginning, Ted Cruz. <sighs> I'm sorry. I would say right now that I'm a Cruz fan, but that might send you into orbit. All right, we'll talk more about this later um, when we come back. Cyrus Narasta from The Young Messiah.
Welcome back. This is the John and Leah Show. My name is John Ziegler. My co-host is Leah Brandon. And uh, Leah, later on in hour number three at some point, we will get back into the uh, insanity that is Trump sanity and um, finish up that particular conversation. But I think it's probably best for everyone uh, if we leave politics for a, for a while. Yeah. Because my uh, blood pressure is about to go off the charts. And um, and also because we've got a, a really great guest. Uh, last week uh, we spoke to him, but there's a darn good chance you actually couldn't hear him because uh, our phone line stunk. So uh, we decided we're going to try this again, doing a novel approach of actually having a phone line on a radio station that works. Uh, he's one of our favorite guests. You probably know him if you're a conservative because he was the guy who wrote The Path to 9-11 back in 2006, the ABC miniseries that was censored by the uh, the Clintons and was actually the subject of my first documentary film, which was called Blocking the Path to 9-11. Well, this week, he has a major film out nationwide in theaters on March 11th. It is extraordinary, and it's called The Young Messiah. Uh, he is Cyrus Narasta. Cyrus, welcome back to the John and Leah Show. Hey, John. How are you? I'm doing great because your phone line works. So th- that uh, It <laughs> sounds beautiful. <laughs> well, considering it's the 21st century, yeah. I think that's quite an accomplishment. Well, you know, it, it probably is appropriate that, you know, you're doing a movie about the, the life of Jesus as a child, and that's basically the level of technology that we're working with on this radio show. Uh, <laughs> so about, that, about that same era. Um, you know, stone tablets, basically, is how we, how we do things on the John and Leah show. All right, so let's talk about the important stuff. Um, you have this movie, The Young Messiah. It's coming out March 11th. I've seen it. It's fantastic. My wife has seen it. She loves it. My three-year-old daughter thought it was tremendous, although we bribed her with M&Ms, but it still kept her attention throughout the entire film. Uh, I highly, highly, highly recommend this, regardless of your religious beliefs. Tell us about the origins of this film, going back to the book, Christ the Lord, and how it became the movie, The Young Messiah. Well, Christ the Lord Out of Egypt was a novel written by Anne Rice in 2005. was a huge bestseller. Uh, it was also a, you know, obviously a different subject uh, for people who are used to reading Anne Rice novels. It was known for Interview with the Vampire and numerous other major novels. I mean, she's been a major American novelist for over 40 years. Um, she had a sort of a born-again experience, went back to Catholicism, wrote this book. Now, Betsy, my wife and co-screenwriter on the movie, had read the book when it first came out and loved it. And I remember her talking to me about it. And if you had told me then that we were going to end up getting to make the movie adaptation of that book, I'd have said, you know, think again. But anyway, we, through a weird series of circumstances, in 2009, when The Stoning of Soraya M. came out, Lionsgate uh, released it. It was an art house release. Anne Rice wrote a rave review. And through her, um, through her agent, who was also an agent that we worked with at CAA, we were able to get the book. I got to read it, talk to Betsy, and I, I told the agent we'd love to run with this and try and set it up. So my first phone call, well, actually, my second phone call was to uh, Michael Barnathan, who is Chris Columbus's partner at 1492 Pictures. Um, they do nothing but hits. Uh, so, including, by the way, Harry Potter movies. People, yeah. that's, that's, that's how people, a lot of people probably know about Christopher Columbus from yeah. the Harry Potter movies. So we're, we're talking about big, big ticket movies here. Yeah, they did the first three Harry Potters. They did the mm-hmm. Home Alone movies. They did Mrs. Doubtfire. 
they produced the night of the museum. They did the help. I mean, we're not talking had. fly by night here. Right. No, and they're great guys. And, um, you know, so they were immediately interested, uh, which was terrific. And then, um, you know, we started the process for over five years ago. So, you know, it was a long process. And you know some of the history, John. In early 2013, we were uh, in pre-production, building sets, costumes, casting, the whole deal, and the whole thing crashed. And it wasn't 1492's fault. It wasn't anybody's fault except we had a fund manager at the time who, whose methods were unsound. Mm. And, and so we... Uh, we were basically done and in trouble, $3 million in the hole. And then Tracy Price of Orange County, who'd come to the rescue of the stoning of Soraya M., came riding in on his horse <laughs> and, and rescued a second film of mine, and, um, which is, I mean, Tracy's an amazing guy, and I'm just uh, indebted to him. Uh, and, you know, they for, he formed a partnership with 1492 Pictures, and this is the first picture out of the gate. It opens Friday, uh, March 11th. And, you know, what else can I tell you? We got the picture up again. It took a year and nine months to get it back up. And uh, I finished it, uh, you know, finished post-production last summer. But uh, Focus Features' game plan essentially was this is an Easter movie. So that's why we're opening this coming Friday leading into Easter. All right. Now, there's a lot of interesting elements of the behind-the-scenes of this movie, this, The Young Messiah, which I want to get into with you because we have some time to discuss it all. But before we do that, I want to make sure people understand what the movie's about and why it's so important uh, to go see it and why they're going to thank us for telling them uh, to go see it because this is a truly unique subject. There's never been a movie made about the life of Jesus Christ as a child, thus the name of the movie, the young messiah so tell us about the make not just the making of it but of the storyline how is it that you you tackle a subject that big that important that no one has ever done before the life of jesus as a child how do you do that well obviously there's great challenges in depicting this because we know very little about jesus's childhood um you know we we seek to present a basically a realistic fictional portrait of what his life could have been at age seven. It's, it, it, you know, scripture is the inspiration for the emotions, the, the, the powers of the child Jesus as they're envisioned in our story. Um, obviously, it's adapted from the Anne Rice novel. She used tons of really interesting source material, which she, uh, which she wrote a chapter about in the back of her book. Uh, we looked at all of those. We also talked to theologians and biblical scholars, because when you're making a movie, it's for this huge, broad audience, and we certainly don't want to offend anybody, so we're very careful about how we approach it. But the basic story is this child starts to recognize, and this is the human side of young Jesus, that there's something different about him. He knows there's something special, something remarkable. He can't quite figure it out, doesn't have the answers, and in the course of the movie is asking the questions and has to go on his own journey, basically, to come to the full comprehension that he is the son of God. That's that's what the movie's about. Now, so we're speaking with Cyrus Durasta, the director and the co-writer, along with his wife Betsy, of the movie The Young Messiah, which comes out this Friday, uh, March 11th. 
Cyrus, I remember when you were first casting the film years ago, because this film, as you've already alluded to, has taken on a couple different incarnations and attempts to, to get it made. It's almost a miracle in and of itself that it's, that it's coming out in theaters. I remember when you started casting, you said, I think I got my Jesus. Uh, and, and this was at the, I mean, this was very early on. You had, you had looked at, I don't know, dozens, if not more, uh, uh, kids to potentially be your Jesus. And, and I, I doubt this happens very often. The first kid that you said, I think I got my Jesus turns out to be the kid. And he's amazing. Tell us why you knew he was going to be your Jesus. Well, <laughs> John, did I really say, I think I got my Jesus. Did I really say that? I Is think- that a direct quote? If you don't want it to be a direct quote, Cyrus, it's not a direct quote, but that's how I remember it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, anyway, look, we were doing a global search, and, you know, I had casting director in Israel, in Jordan, in Rome, in London, Los Angeles, New York. We even had a gal in Australia. We're looking hard. We put out an open casting call. We had over 2,000 submissions. When you include the tapes of all, all the tapes that were sent in from hopeful mothers, and I get a call one day from the casting director in London. Suzanne Smith calls me and says, we just saw a child. She, by the way, she cast Path to 9-11, by the way. But anyway, she said, we just saw a child who made the hair stand up on the back of our necks. Mm. She sent me the tape. I watched it on computer, uh, flew to London put him through an exhaustive audition process, and he was just game. This, this child was game for anything. The minute you see him, he was seven when I first saw him. You just want to – you melt when you see this kid. Mm-hmm. And also he's kind of spunky, and he's smart. And he started actually kind of redirecting the other actor in one of the first scenes I was auditioning for. <laughs> so I, 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 was, I was just impressed all around. Met his parents, met his family, um, and, you know – so I told Michael Barnathan at 1492 Pictures, I, I, I told Tracy at the time, at the time Tracy was just a minority investor in it, but he was my buddy, and we looked at it, and um, I said, we've got to send it to Chris. We'll put, we'll put uh, four other kids on it who are pretty good, but not even close, at least in my mind. They were not even close. And we'll send it to Chris. Nobody tell Chris which one's my selection. Which one, and by the way, uh, Michael uh, and Tracy thought this child was, was the one. So Chris looked at them, called back, and said, it's not even close. He was, he was, you know, he loved the same kid. And this is, remember, this is the guy who cast Harry Potter, which I think is one of the most amazing pieces of casting in, music, in movie history. Are, are you allowed, speaking, I mean, I'm now hesitant because of uh, misquoting, but are you allowed to say what Christopher <laughs> Columbus said in relation to his Harry Potter experience with regard to your Jesus? Well, he thought that Adam, the, the boy's name is Adam Graves Neal, he thought that Adam, for his age, was better than any young actor he'd ever seen. And including all the actors in, that he cast for Harry Potter. Yeah, and, and of course, that, now when he cast those, cast, uh, those actors for Harry Potter, they were older. Right. Than, uh, I, I think they were closer to around 10, you know. Right. But, yeah. All um, right. We're talking with Cyrus Narasta. He's the director and the co-writer of the movie out in theaters nationwide this coming Friday, The Young Messiah. you got to go see it. More with Cyrus when we return on the John and Leah Show on the Free Speech Broadcasting Network.
Welcome back. This is the John and Leah show. My name is John Ziegler. My co-host is Leah Brandon, and we are speaking with one of our very favorite people, although that list isn't very long, so... <laughs> hey, but he made the cut big time. So our guest Cyrus Narasta, the director and the co-writer of the uh, nationwide movie coming out on March 11th called The Young Messiah. It is the story of Jesus Christ as a child. And and Cyrus, to me, the, the reason I've been so optimistic for the many years that we've known each other when you have been battling to get this movie made and in theaters, which finally now happens uh, this Friday, uh, I've been saying, look, you have property, and I mean property not in the sense of you, you owning Jesus, but your movie has a subject matter that no one has ever done before. That's incredibly, literally unique in this day and age where we've seen almost everything. There's almost every story has been told many, many times. Your story has never been told what will people experience when they go into the theater on March 11th, 12th, or 13th this weekend and see The Young Messiah? Wow. Uh, I hope they'll experience a, a, a heartwarming uh, piece of, you know, entertainment. I mean, it, it's hard for me to say. I, I can say this. We've had a number of advanced screenings, okay? And one thing that a lot of people say is that, they see in the film events that kind of foreshadow Jesus' life as depicted in the Gospels, which I think is one of the most interesting things that's come out of these advanced screenings, with many of which have been for religious influencers. You know, um, we're also going to see sort of the child, in a sense, who's father to the man. We're going to understand that this kid, this seven-year-old boy, this seven-year-old Jesus is consistent with the Jesus that we see revealed in the Bible. And that was really important to us in the making of the film, I think to Anne Rice in the writing of the original book, as well as to the religious influencers, the pastors, uh, all these people we've shown the film to, many of whom have come in with a lot of skepticism and a lot of questions and their theological checklist, all of which they kind of threw out the window once they started watching the movie. And um, we've been amazed at what little resistance we've gotten. I mean, we've gotten incredible support and, and endorsements from, what, Focus on the Family, Campus Crusade, uh, Cardinals and Archbishops, um, Young Life. There's so many. I, even the Southern Baptists have endorsed the film, We said, and we were told that that was going to be impossible. Lee, I know you haven't seen the film yet, but I assume you're going to. You've seen the trailers. Uh, what do you find interesting or curious about uh, the Young Messiah movie? Okay, well, first of all, I just want to let it be known that I've taken Friday off. I will not be working on Friday just so that I can go to the theater during the middle of the day. Wow! Now that's something else right there. That's an endorsement. Holy cow. Good for you. Make sure We're you bring a, bring a few friends, by the way. Thank you, I Leah. Definitely will. Oh, you bet. I wouldn't miss it for the world. I'm so looking forward to this. I think this is going to be just seeing the trailer um, because, you know, I, I actually should pull it up and play it because um, there's a scene right outside the temple where apparently Jesus has attracted some attention uh, by doing a little bit of teaching. And I guess it's a soldier that comes along and, and says, you know, who is who is this? And 
And Jesus's mom says, he's just a child. He's just a child. And then the guy goes, he's not just a child. And you get these chills. Um, and I'm so looking forward to it. I, this well, I cannot wait. Well, you're, you're, the actor you're referring to there is Sean Bean, who is a major actor, uh, Cyrus. And tell yeah. us about it. Tell us about his role, which is really critical. He's my favorite character of many in The Young Messiah. You know, Sean Bean has been a favorite actor of mine for decades. I've, I've loved this guy ever since he did the, sh- the old Sharp series, which probably nobody remembers, where he played a Napoleonic foot soldier in the British Army. Of course, I love history, you know, so... I've always loved Sean Bean, and he's also, you know, he's Ned Stark in Game of Thrones. He was in Lord of the Rings. He's always given outstanding performances. And when we were writing the script, Betsy and I, we were talking about Sean Bean to play the Centurion. So it was, you know, I, I got to meet him when we were initially, after we initially sent him the script. He and I sat down and uh, had a couple of beers one night in, uh, in London. I really liked him. He's very soft-spoken, very thoughtful, doesn't talk a lot, but he's just got a nice presence about him, and he really is thinking. And when you watch him act, he's always thinking in the part. So there's so much stuff coming out of his eyes and, and that communicates from his face. He doesn't ha- he's one of these actors who doesn't have to say a lot. His presence tells you so much. Luckily, when, when the movie got back up a year and nine months later, we, I wanted to get him back, and he was shooting a Chris Columbus movie in Toronto, uh, Pixels. And Michael Barnath and Chris's partner was there, and I said, Michael, you got to tell him that we're back up. we got to get him again. And so, you know, Tracy and I and, and Bill Andrew, one of the other producers, were just all over them, and Michael just played it beautifully. And, you know, he was set to do, actually, uh, another movie. And he forego doing that movie so that he could do ours. Wow. Well, it, it's well worth it because his character, I think, is, you know, in my estimation, sorry, I don't know if you agree with this, but to me, it's the emotional um, uh, catharsis of the film is through Sean Bean's Centurion character. And in a, in a way, your, your journey through this film is somewhat similar to the centurion in this film. Um, you, know, you, you know, I don't know if you agree with that or not, but I mean, I never, I've known you for 10 years now. I never thought of you as a particularly religious person, but you, you feel as if this movie has been a deeply religious experience for you personally. No, it has. I mean, you know, look, my journey started a long time ago, probably longer ago than I know, but just the whole thing of how this movie came together and what we've been through on it, the numerous obstacles that were thrown in our way. And then, you know, when it fell apart, I thought, you know what, maybe I'm, maybe my faith isn't deep enough. Maybe I'm not the right guy to make this movie. Maybe God is telling me something. Wow. Then my daughter-in-law said to me, well, you know, God often chooses those who are unqualified. And I thought to myself, well, maybe he's got the right guy. So, you know, it just we just kept pushing, and it's, you know, we, look, I, I kind of identify with the Sean Bean character in the movie to a certain extent, too. I mean, he's playing a kind of tortured soul, but I just know plenty of other people. I think it's, it's each person, it's just how they see themselves individually and who they connect with in the movie. I know people who connect with the parents, Joseph and Mary. I know mothers and women especially who connect with Mary who just want to embrace and protect this child. 
I've talked to, to we just did a screening for kids, and I saw a collection of interviews with these children who'd seen the movie who all talked about Jesus and how they identify with Jesus, and they want him to be their best friend. Awesome stuff. All right, Cyrus, hang in there. Uh, we're going to go into hour number three with our conversation with Cyrus Narasta, the director and the co-writer of the movie The Young Messiah, coming out in theaters nationwide on March 11th. Make sure you go on March 11th or at least the 12th, or otherwise it doesn't count. Uh, hour number three of the John and Leah Show coming up next on the Free Speech Broadcasting Network.